While you're turning in your Bibles to Acts 13, let's remember where we've been. It's the, uh, the context is Paul and Barnabas are preaching to a Jewish audience. That has been the predominant reality for Acts so far. The gospel first came through Christ to the Jews, right? He was born in the Jewish region and ministered originally to the Jews. And then when his ministry ended and he went up to heaven, he told the disciples, now you're going to go make disciples of all the nations. But, and so the book of Acts reflects the reality that they focused on the Jews first, but a turning point has come. And so while they're ministering to the Jews, they're in the synagogue, and the leader of the synagogue stands up and says, does anybody have a word of encouragement? And Paul's ready. He's a, minister, he's a missionary, he's a preacher, and he's an apostle, and he is ready to bring the encouragement. That word encouragement literally means, means come to our aid. Can you help us? Can you help us walk in these truths? And so he stands up and he preaches. And this is in Acts chapter 13. And we've gone through in two parts, the first two parts of his sermon. We, we first looked at the reality that God elects or chooses his people. We saw that in, the, in Father Abraham. He was chosen. And when his people came to Egypt... They were enslaved, and then he freed them. And the whole salvation thing, he did because he had chosen them. But the problem was that even when he saved them, they responded with wickedness, selfishness, idolatry, sin, sexual immorality, the whole bit. And so what we saw from that was that basically we are depraved. We are unable, no matter how much power God puts on display, we're actually unable to follow him. Now, that's an encouragement because it shows how great God is when we are so not great, right? And so this is how Paul is building his case for encouragement. And then he moves on to explain how that message of salvation comes to us. Last week, we saw that the promise that God has made to our forefathers, which is security and, and protection and provision and all of that comes to us through Jesus Christ. That's how God delivered his promises. And part of that promise was that not only was he going to give a law like he did in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, he gave a law on stone and said, here, obey. People, obviously, they could not do it because their bodies are not able to do it. Our minds are not able to obey. And so God made a promise in the book of Jeremiah, and he said, okay, I'm going to make a better covenant with you. I'm going to give you the law again, but this time I'm going to write it onto your heart. And then I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my law. In other words, I'm not just going to beckon you to follow me. I'm going to cause you to follow me. Isn't that so encouraging? Like that's, that's the essence of the encouragement of the gospel. That's the good news. That's the new covenant that we are now in. So Paul's wrapping up this sermon, and he finished with an invitation. It's not just pie-in-the-sky information. He said, now, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness and freedom is proclaimed. Through Jesus Christ, you can be freed. Not just in general, the people of God, but you. And so isn't that a challenge to you this morning to respond to the gospel and to say, this is not for other people. This is not just for some generic group out there, but this is for me, that I am invited to respond to that. And that's how he finished last week. He issued this invitation to literally partake in the promises. The promises are delivered, but we need to partake in them. And we do that through trust in Christ. 
There's no other way to partake in God's promise than trusting in Jesus Christ. So that's how we finished last week. Let's read this morning's passage and see how this plays out in the world. So we've got a doctrinal and exhortational sermon, and now we see how it takes traction in the world. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, this is the apostles who were preaching in the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Don't miss that. The next Sabbath, almost the entire city showed up. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made to you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes Isaiah 49 there. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, I pray that now your word um, would be opened to us that our hearts would respond as you, uh, through your Holy Spirit, would soften us and awaken us to understand and believe. Lord, cause us to hear and listen and obey and respond to you. And Lord, above all, to worship you. We pray for help in this time, both in the speaking and the hearing of your word. We ask it for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. So yeah, if you've ever been at a work meeting and you sort of think at the end of the meeting, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, why was this meeting called? This really seems like a waste of time. There's no action at the end of it. There's no call to action. There's no decisive direction presented. And you wonder, what was the purpose of all this? Well, Paul doesn't run work meetings like that. Paul had this meeting, and at the end of it, he gave a direct call to action. He said, now repent and believe and trust in Christ. And also, he issued a warning. He was utterly clear at the end of this meeting what it was these people were supposed to do. Trust in Christ and beware that they ignore the message. So he confronts them. He has made clear that the gospel is not just some generic truth just kind of floating through the world, but it is in fact a gospel that demands a response from me and you. It demands a response. It, it confronts us. The gospel is not a passive, take-it-or-leave-it kind of message. It creates one of two responses. It either creates rejection and hardness, or it creates hunger, and it draws. It divides, and it gathers at the very same time. 
And so I would, I would argue that this might be the most moving work meeting you've ever listened into. This is not just a new strategy for marketing or a new strategy for HR. This is the destiny of all mankind. And so Paul invites us to respond and to see how the gospel takes place. And you're going to see sort of four elements to this. You're going to see a warning. You're going to see rejection. You're going to see persecution. And you're going to see progress. So you're going to see a warning from God. You're going to see a rejection of the message. You're going to see a persecution that follows. And you're going to see the progress that takes place. So God warns his listeners, all right? So the, the gospel is presented to these people free of charge. It's just like, here's the good news. You can be freed and forgiven. But then immediately following, there's a warning. And this is from Habakkuk chapter 1. And you know my favorite verse comes from Habakkuk chapter 2. For the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as sea co- water covers the sea. Well, right before that, there's a warning in Habakkuk that says, beware. Well, Paul says to them, now beware. In other words, watch out. That what is spoken of in the prophets does not take place for you. In other words, there are prophecies that have said that there are people who will ignore this. I pray that that's not you. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I pray this is not about you. And he quotes and he says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Now, why such harsh words? Why such a harsh warning? Be astounded and perish. That's super harsh for a gospel presentation, isn't it? But what's the context? What's the context of God's warning? For I am doing a work in your days. It's happening right in front of you. You can see it. You you have heard of Christ. I put him on display as crucified for your sins. I'm doing a work. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. In other words, even if you didn't see the events... That's why the apostles were important, because they all saw the events. But nonetheless, every single person who hears the message is equally accountable to that reality. You will not believe unless one tells it to you. In other words, the, the message of the gospel goes out predominantly verbally. It's a verbal presentation. It's a verbal command. It's a verbal exhortation. And God says you are accountable for hearing the gospel. So there's a strong warning. And there's three reasons that this warning is significant. Number one, it's that seeing God's work makes us responsible. And that's how true is that in our day. God is certainly at work among us. God is saving the lost among us. Did you know that? Have you talked to people in this church about what God has done in their life? God is at work in our day. And when you see the work of God, it makes you responsible. It makes you responsible. You can't, you can't unknow what you know. When you see God at work. Number two, hearing God wor- God's word makes you accountable. You're accountable for what you hear. It's wonderful to sit under the preaching of God, but it is equally grave to understand that you are accountable to God for what you know about him. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That we are accountable for what we know. And he has made us intelligent beings to respond and to interact with what we have heard. Number three, being invited to believe and receive his blessings makes us answerable. What did you do when you were invited? How did you respond when the gospel was presented to you? You were invited to believe. How did you respond? We are answerable to God for the invitation that he gives us. That's why this warning is so significant because seeing God's word makes us responsible, his work. Hearing God's word makes us accountable and being invited in God's word 
makes us answerable to God. Now, why, again, why is this warning so harsh? The warning is equal only to the incomparable blessing that salvation is. It's kind of like water self-levels. If you have an incomparable blessing in the gospel, you have an equally strong and stern warning to respond. In other words, the beauty and, and the profundity of the gospel, what it offers you is not just a take it or leave it deal. When God presents the greatest news on earth that you can be freed from your sin and welcomed into his kingdom, how do you respond? What do you say to that? Hebrews chapter 2, 1 to 3 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Why? The writer of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Like, what do you think God's going to do when he presents you salvation? He presents you freedom. And you neglect it. And you say, not important. How do you think God responds to those people? There, there is no other response other than righteous wrath. Because of the cost, we read about Christ's sufferings. The cost of delivering his promises was infinite to God. And so far be it from us to ignore how good it is. And, and we today stand before this warning, knowing that we have heard God's word. We have been invited to receive his blessing and we have seen his work. And we are answerable to God and we stand before this warning in the same way the Jews did. Now, what else do we see in the text? We see that rejection is costly. There is a rejection that takes place following this. And this is pro- predominantly among the the Jews at large. And this is sort of a a redemptive theme in the scriptures that the Jews essentially turned away from Christ. John chapter 1 says, uh, he came to his own, being Jesus, his own people. Jesus was born a Jew. He came to his own. And the predominant response was his own did not receive him. That's a redemptive theme in scripture over and over and over again, that Christ was rejected. And even as the message went out from the apostles, the rejection continues. We see that as Paul is preaching, that they begin to contradict him. It's funny because these leaders not not only didn't receive the message for themselves, but they staked themselves out as opponents. They staked themselves out as opponents to the messengers of God. They didn't just say, well, we're not really sure about your theology, Paul, but, you know, do your thing and we'll do ours. They, they staked themselves out as opposing God and his gospel. And, and Paul has a serious word for them. Paul says he responds in verse 46 there. He says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly at when they were contradicting him. And he says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. In other words, they have, they have decided for themselves. This word, judged yourselves as unworthy, means to separate out. It means to make a decision for. And so the Jews have now decidedly separated themselves from eternal life, from the promise of the gospel, from the hope that God has delivered in Christ. They have judged themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, unworthy. Now again, does this seem harsh? Does this seem unfair? That God would allow people to have what they decide for themselves? I mean, we need to reckon with this reality that maybe it's possible that God gives people what they want. 
In fact, this activity triggers what was spoken of in Christ. And I want to read this for you. Parable of the wedding feast. The kingdom of heaven may be be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared a dinner and oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Verse 7 now, how does the king respond? The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Same language. Those who were invited are not worthy to come. Why? Not because they're not good enough, but because they were invited and they said no. They were invited and they said no. They judged themselves unworthy. And he said in verse 9 and Matthew 22, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all who they found, both bad and good. Did you hear that? So the original invitees crumpled up their invitations said, I'm busy. And they went out and invited all that they could. And Jesus' specific words say they invited both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The bad and the good took a place at the Lord's table, at the king's table, and enjoyed his blessing. This rejection here in Acts chapter 13 triggers this response from the king. The king got angry in verse 7, and he sent his troops and destroyed the city. We know that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 67 to 70. God fulfilled that in spades. The rejection from the Jewish nation was redemptively significant. It is etched in history as a testament to the cost of rejecting the gospel when you're responsible for it. These are not people who were groping around in ignorance. They had everything God had given them. And so rejection is costly. And what do the, what do the apostles say? They say, We're turning to the Gentiles now. This is exactly that moment spoken of in the parable. Go to the main roads. Go invite the bad and the good. Go go to the pagan temples and invite the prostitutes. Invite the orgy leaders. Invite the pagan priests. Invite the merchants. Invite everybody. This is the gospel. This is the age that we live in now. The gospel invitation is open to everybody. But how costly it is for those who reject when they have heard the good news. Now, amazingly, this, again, said this rejection is not neutral. This rejection is not passive. It morphs into persecution against the church. Seeing the crowds with jealousy, the Jews contradicted and reviled the apostles. Did you see that? Almost the whole town gathered. Almost the whole town came out to hear the word of God. And what did the Jews say? When they saw the crowds They were filled with jealousy. So as the people cry out, they hear the the warning, they hear the invitation, and they respond, they cry out. They're begging for more. And then the Jews see the crowds. And my friends, there is nothing like a crowd. There is nothing like a lust for influence in seeing a crowd gather for somebody else to fire up a man-centered religion. That'll get a man-centered religion just fired right up. 
You want the crowds. You know, God gathers crowds. When people are hungry for God's word, the crowds will come. But the apostles could care less about the size of the crowd they're preaching to. But man-centered religion just lusts after influence. Do you know how many church planting strategies I see about that talk about the need for social media following and building critical mass, building crowds and awareness and, and, and popularity? No. Amassing crowds is not the point of Christian ministry. The Jews lusted after the crowds. And when they saw the crowds going to the wrong teachers, they got involved. You know why? Because there's a territory war. There's a turf war going on in the spiritual realm. Me and you and them outside, they are the prize to be won. They are the territory to be conquered. And they will either be won to God through his word, by his servants, or they will be one to Satan through his word, by his servants. That's the essence of Christian ministry. We're not just looking to grow sort of some ethereal influence in the idea realm. There is a turf war, there's a territory war for the souls of people who gather in crowds. And Satan sees a crowd and wants to keep them as far away from the truth as he can. And so he, he incites these Jews, no doubt, no doubt to the delight of Satan, the Jews began contradicting the message. They, they attack the message, right? They attack the word. They contradict it. They seek to argue with Paul in, in, in public and saying, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Why? Because they're trying to confuse the crowds. Because if they can keep the crowds in darkness, then they can keep them in their camp. The truth is a dangerous thing to false religion. It's a dangerous thing to a man-centered religion because it frees people from slavery to ignorance, from slavery to self. So this turf war arises in its immediate persecution. Now, this is light persecution compared to what Paul's going to face later. He was contradicted in public, and he was reviled. This word reviled, uh, blasphemo, it, it comes from the same word that we get the word blaspheme, to speak foolishly or ignorantly or against uh, things that are good or true. To blaspheme God is to speak, obviously, against God or to bring him down. And in some sense, they were blaspheming Paul. They were reviling him as he carried the word of God. So persecution rises up. And Paul responds boldly. He is undeterred. This is great. I love this model. And Paul and Barnabas just, they answered back. And we've already covered this. They answered back. You have thrust aside the word of God. They are undeterred by the contradiction. Now remember, the synagogue leaders were in the place of influence in the city. These were guys who were big deals. These weren't just like street corner folk. The synagogue leaders were greatly respected in the town. They were in the positions of authority and leadership. And Paul's like, I don't care who you are. You're wrong. This is the word of God. And you're thrusting it aside. It doesn't matter what robes you're wearing. It doesn't matter what place of position you have. God's word is going forward and you cannot stand against it. And here's the hope. And so there's this territory war going on. There's this spiritual battle going on for the hearts and minds and souls of living people. 
Here's the good news. We've seen that God warns his listeners that rejection is costly, that persecution will follow when the church ministers the truth. But we see that progress is guaranteed. Progress is guaranteed. Now, Paul quotes this passage. You have sent us to the ends of the earth that you will be a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is again from Isaiah 49. How How do the Gentiles respond? Gentiles are really excited about this part in the day. You mean there's a scripture for us? You mean, you mean God doesn't just favor the Jews? There's a, there's a specific scripture that we get to hear the gospel and get saved? The Gentiles go bananas. They rejoice. They throw up their hands and they praise God. He wants to save us too? And this is an Old Testament quote. This is not just the words of, of Jesus in some disconnected way. This is the Old Testament predicting and prescribing the salvation of all people everywhere. Friends, we can't miss that God's redemptive plan is global. It always has been. That God was going to reach the ends of the earth with his salvation, which is why our theme verse as a church is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. It will not be relegated to tiny pockets here and there of the faithful elect standing strong. God wins the war. He's victorious. I mean, there's no struggle for him. It's a matter of the onward progress of the kingdom of God and, and the march forward of, of, of his knowledge and his glory. And so the Gentiles get excited about this. And they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So let's look at this progress a little bit. There's one thing you cannot miss. After he preaches this gospel and he explains the redemptive arc of moving toward the Gentiles and turning away. And the other thing you have to see is that the apostles shook the dust from their feet at this point. They literally washed their hands of the Jewish people at large. Now, does this mean that if Paul met a Jew in the street, he'd be like, nope, I've washed my hands of the Jews. No, it just meant that he said, you've rejected. I'm washing my hands. I'm shaking the dust off of my feet. You have chosen and judged yourselves as unworthy. But on the flip side of that, the Gentiles are now going to be focused on, they're now going to receive preaching. The resources of the early church are now going to turn towards those in the highways and the byways, the good and the bad. And the Gentiles are excited and, and, they're, and they're thrilled. And after Paul preaches this, you can't miss this in verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Friends, if you have any doubt about what the apostles believed about salvation, see it here in Acts chapter 13, that God has chosen to save people. He has appointed many for salvation. Salvation is not option A and rejection option B. In fact, some people will look at election and say, well, doesn't that slow down your evangelism because you think, oh, if God's appointed them, then they'll get saved anyway. On the contrary, if God has chosen people to be saved who are not yet saved, how much more uh, motivated and fervent ought we to be in our preaching and our evangelism because some will believe. I've seen it in this church. I've seen believers come who are appointed to salvation. I didn't know that. I don't discriminate among people when I preach or when I speak the gospel, but God has set aside some for salvation and, and, and they will believe. This encouragement began with election in Abraham and it concludes with election in the Gentiles. 
whether you are Abraham himself or whether you are a Gentile in the 21st century, if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, it's because God has appointed you to salvation. We cannot miss this. That's why progress is guaranteed. The progress of the church is never in peril. The progress of the church is never threatened by persecution. Why? Because God has appointed many for salvation. And it will take place. Salvation is, 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 is literally activated among the Gentiles here. Now, why does, why does this happen? How does this happen? Again, does this slow down our evangelism? And we just read this morning together, Isaiah 55. For as the rain comes down out of heaven and does not return, but it waters the earth, making it sprout, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and, excuse me, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, how are the elect to believe? How are those appointed to salvation going to believe? It's the work of the word of the Lord. It's like rain. The rain falls everywhere, right? The rain falls on parking lots. It falls on your house roof. It falls on the playground. It falls on your vegetable garden. Sprouts don't sprout up everywhere the rain falls. You don't have trees growing out of the top of your house because it rained, right? Some of you have moss on your roof. That's Okay. Sprouts don't come up everywhere. When the rain falls on your veggie garden, that's a wonderful result. When it falls on a parking lot, it's washed away. The idea there is that when God rains his word down on the earth, in some places it will bear fruit. It will not fail. That's the great thing, friends. When you, when you evangelize people, when you're telling people, explaining the gospel to them, lean heavily on the word of God. Lean heavily on the word of God. Share the word of God with them because the word is going to accomplish salvation in them, not you. Your testimony is to supplement the word. It is to be part of the proof of God's word, but it, but it is secondary. We share the word because it does not return void. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, God declares. That's a promise. God's word is powerful to do it. That's why progress is guaranteed. Because number one, God has chosen that some will be saved. And that two, it is God's instrument that does the work. So the Gentiles, they rejoice in God's redemptive plan. Right? Imagine you're living in darkness and somebody comes by in the middle of a power outage and says, here's a generator, here's power for your home for the next five days until the power comes back on. You rejoice because life has been given to you. This is how the Gentiles were. They were literally in darkness. They did not have God. And then the Bible says, now salvation is going to come to all of you. And they rejoice. Now let's see how true progress is marked out. And I want you to see this very clearly. The word divides and the word hardens, but the word also gathers and the word also saves Notice this, they did not praise Paul, they did not praise the church, but it literally says they glorified the word of the Lord. Do you see that in your text? This is in verse 48. They began glorifying the word of the Lord because they recognized it is God who has brought salvation to them. Paul is literally just a messenger. And the Gentiles, hearing the word of the Lord, they began glorifying the word of the Lord we cannot treasure it enough. This is why biblical literacy is our first commitment as a church because as we understand his word, we understand him. There's no disconnect between his word and him. He's revealed in it. 
and they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And so my friends, true progress is marked out not by elevating a leader, not by elevating a certain gift or a certain personality. We don't rally around some gifted individual. That's not Christian progress. Christian progress is when the church glories in God's word and understands it and believes it and treasures it. And I'm not just saying racks up knowledge and spits it back out. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a deep-seated love for and commitment to and joy in the word of the Lord. That's a mark of true progress. Another thing that we're going to see, what's a mark of true progress in verse 49? The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That's a phrase that takes up over and over and over again in the New Testament. It is the word that is spreading. The word is like the seed. It is the word that is going out. Now, can I just make a contrast here? They are not necessarily counting churches planted. They're not just counting ministries that launch. True progress is marked by the presence and the proclamation of the word. It doesn't matter if you plant a church. That does, that does not make you a de facto pr- progression of Christian truth or Christian ministry. You can plant 50 churches in Smith Falls, and they are only significant in the book of Acts insofar as the word of God is the center of them. It is the word of the Lord that spread. And we are significant in the book of Acts insofar as we are like that. Where the word of the Lord is present, it is authoritative, it is struggle with. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we all understand all of it all the time or that we never disagree on any elements of it. We wrestle with the Bible and certainly we, we seek to grow in how we apply it. And that's done in, the, in a family context. That's not just done alone with you and YouTube. You know, that is done in a family context. But friends, if the Bible is not the central authority, then we are not a mark of a true Christian ministry. We, we aren't. We are a pseudo-Christian culture. But if the Bible is not propelling and exciting and fueling and informing the ministry, we are not a Christian ministry, period. And so I pray that as a church, we, we grow in our joy of that. And here's the, here's the fantastic part about that, is that none of us wrote the Bible. It's not up to any one of us to create the playbook for what should the church preach or believe. It's just there. It's there. It's the Bible. It's already given to us. And as I said, it's not churches that, or a great pastor or a great music team that accomplish progress in the, in, in the kingdom of God. It is the word itself. And so I pray that we have confidence in that. And so we saw that there's a warning to hearing the message. We saw that there is a rejection that takes place and it's a costly one. We saw that persecution arises out of rejection. And we saw that progress is absolutely guaranteed. Now, as we close, I want to maybe issue a few ways that we ought to personally respond to this text and, and grow in what this text has presented. Number one, I think we need to be like these folks. This is in verse 42. We need to raise our response and our desire for the word. After the meeting broke up, they begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. These people heard the word of God and they just hungered for it. And I want to challenge 
how many of us feel that way toward God's word. I would say we live in very difficult times to maintain a pure desire for anything. We are so overloaded with option, with options for enjoyment, distraction, hobbies, busyness, responsibilities. We are overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed. And, and I want to challenge us as a church, begin to shape your life in such a way that you can nurture your response to the word. And I think for a lot of us, that's going to mean changing the way we even approach our worship time. Do we come to church setting aside what, what we desire, what we plan for, and just saying, God, I, I beg that these things would be told to me. I beg that your word would take seat in my heart. And I wonder how we go about the rest of our days because when in the parable of the sower, when the sower is scattering seed, some lands on soil where the birds come and snatch it away. Do you receive the seed of the word of God and, and protect it and cherish it and nurture it? Or do you just walk out of here and it's just gone? And so I pray that we can raise our response and our desire for the word of God. That's number one. Number two, when God is at work in the world through the word, we're going to hit bumpy roads. That's in our text. When the word is proclaimed truthfully, when the warning is given clearly, there's going to be bumpiness. The mark of faithful ministry is not smooth progress and expansive success. In fact, the mark of faithful ministry is often contradiction, reviling, and persecution. That is a sign that we are hitting the edges of that right road. When we come up against that territory where when we bump up against the fringes of where God has not yet worked, we are going to meet bumpy roads. Things are going to feel rough. Things are going to get shaken up. And I'd say that's exactly how we know we're on the right direction. I'm not saying there's no cause for self-examination. I'm not making that claim, but I'm saying when God is at work through his word, it's going to be bumpy. And number three, we only show up on the radar as a ministry insofar as the word of God is given the rightful place. And that, again, I, I hope you don't take that as, well, Tim likes preaching, so, you know, he get you know, let Tim do more of what, no, it has nothing to do with that. If I fall over dead tomorrow, I pray that some preacher will stand up here next Sunday and proclaim God's word faithfully until he dies. I mean, may God's word have the center of this ministry, for otherwise it, is, it, is, it does not register on the radar in Acts. And so I, let me ask you a question. Do you want to stake out a notable ministry with large crowds in an easygoing environment with a sheltered public profile? Is that the kind of ministry you want to be part of? Or do you want to be a part of one which sees the word advanced and souls saved? That, that's the kind of ministry I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of the latter. Um, and I think the latter begins when we hear and respond to the word privately. Make, make, make that a priority and a posture in your own life that you would treasure this in your own heart. And to that, I will add that I hope we don't turn and criticize the world for its sin when we ourselves are not walking in the word ourselves. If we have some general moral outrage about what's going on out there and we are not sharpened and, and bound by the word in our private lives, then we're hypocrites. And so I pray that it, we would grow in that privately. And friends, don't miss the part where Jesus actually accomplishes salvation in his people. As many as were appointed to believe, they 
were saved and the Gentiles rejoiced. There is a remnant that will believe. There are, there are many who will rejoice in the truth. It is not all doom and gloom for the church. It is not all doom and gloom. There will be, there will be moments of salvation and rejoicing and victory. And it's often equally balanced with bumpiness and reviling and contradiction. Uh, but God is marching on in his truth and, and, and it's people. It's people. I, I, we can't miss this. The territory war is for people. It's for living souls who will be one to God through Christ, his word, and his people, or to Satan through his word. And so I pray that we are clear about what we know about God and freely offer as to go out to the highways and the byways and invite the good and the bad. And we leave that, the rest, up to the Lord. Right? Isn't that a, a comfort to us? And so uh, that's the conclusion of Acts up to 13 and the predominantly Jewish ministry. And we're going to continue on as a church as, as faithfully as we know how to obey and walk in the scriptures. And, and as you as, as families do that, you don't have to do that alone. It's, it's taken a lot of falling down and getting back up, even in my own home, to make the word more central, to lead my wife and kids in the word, to share it with them. I mean, Lewis is not always the greatest listener, and he never knows the answers. But God is at work through his word, and it's daily and it's small, but you are not alone in whatever God is calling you to do to grow in that in a private way. And so I pray that you take advantage of your church family, people around you who have been there before, who have struggled with these things, and can help you grow in response to, to the word and your confidence in Christ. And so I pray that's a reality. Let me close in prayer, and we do have a song to respond. Lord, thank you for this morning.